Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and the rest of the world. And we've got a lot to cram in in this, our first full podcast since um, the turn of the year. Once again, I hope you all had a great Christmas New Year period. For those of you who didn't listen to the one that was out last week, if so, where were you? Start subscribing so you get these automatically. And anyway, welcome, 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 as we say when we uh, do live shows. On that front, I'm taking a kind of break from live shows for a bit. But one of the ones that will be in March is the next one at King's Place. It's on March the 26th. And given the number of emails triggered by the last live show, the Christmas special, you've got to come along. So please do book. The um, link for booking that is in the uh, blurb for the podcast. And it's there already on the King's Place website for you to get uh, tickets for that, where, uh, you know, it would be after the budget and all the other kind of things that will be building up and whirling around at that particular time. Uh, If it's okay with all of you, before we get to your brilliant points and questions, many of which were triggered by the last live show, just one kind of apology before I move on to my reflections and then your points. Um, Thank you those who uh, asked for signed labels who were buying my book, Turning Points, as a Christmas present. Um, I've I've got to apologise to you all because I've realised that my handwriting is beyond appalling. I knew it was appalling, but I didn't realise it was beyond appalling. But a friend of mine who I sent a Christmas card to uh, put uh, the card on her Facebook page and said, who sent this card? I can't read it. I've got no idea who it was. And she got kind of messages in response to the uh, photo of the card with my signature saying, uh, be careful with this person. They're obviously seriously ill, disturbed and all the rest of it. And I kind of, my daughter said, that's my dad. I texted her saying, I put a very personal message in that card. Um, So I suddenly realized all of you who got the... uh, stickers to put in the book with a message if you ask for a message and the signature probably the whole thing was illegible uh, but at least it's authentic it really is me I'm left-handed I clearly can't write so I thought I'd better uh, put in an apology for that and I know some of you ask for the stickers but without the Christmas deadline. Now I'll try and get back to those emails because it was accompanied with some very nice messages about the podcast and the live shows and the books. But if I don't, please email me again because now obviously I've done the Christmas deadlines. That's through. So I've still got a few stamps. I've I've spent half a million pounds on stamps and I only bought a book of 10. So do get in touch if I don't send the stickers. Now, what an interesting start to the new year and there are many kind of angles I could pursue in my reflections. But if I don't cover them in this opening spiel, uh, they will probably come up via your brilliant points and questions. Um, I want to focus a bit on the wider lessons from the post office scandal that has erupted again in recent days. And by the way, isn't it interesting 
uh, the power of really good television drama. Here is a story that has been around. It has been covered brilliantly in series for Radio 4, in the newspapers, and so on. And yet this TV drama has brought it so vividly to life, it's become a huge news story again. Nothing else has happened except for a drama on television. You, you know, films like Kathy Come Home in the late mid to late 60s, when television was such a dominant medium, changed policy. But still now in our fractured media, it can happen. So that's interesting. But what I wanted to reflect on much more, because this is one of the wider themes of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, is why the scandal was overlooked for so long. And uh, it's very interesting that the other day, the Sunday Times collated some of the letters ministers sent to those who were pleading for them to intervene to do something about the scandal. And the responses of ministers, it was during the coalition era, where coincidentally uh, various Lib Dem ministers were responsible for the post office. And their responses shine so much light on the approach of public service delivery, really, much more widely in this era of anti, the anti-state era, the small state being the model uh, emphatically favoured by Cameron. That's what his big society was all about. Um, but more widely, as we have seen, um, to some extent by New Labour, and certainly by Sunak now, who can't even bear the idea of legislating for a body like Great British Railways to sort of try and coordinate the chaos of these. But anyway, here is one of the letters from Ed Davey, who was uh, the relevant minister in the coalition when he was um, approached about it from some of those attempting to expose what has become known as the biggest miscarriage of justice in British history. That's how it's often being referred to. So anyway, Davy was responsible, and he wrote to one of those saying, look, please inquire into this and make sure that this miscarriage is addressed. And Davy responded, this was uh, his first response in the very early days of the coalition, and it reveals so much about the culture. He said that the decision to treat the post office as an arm's-length body quotes arm's length from Ed Davey, meant it had the commercial freedom to run its business operations without interference. A spokesman for Davey says now that he was advised by officials that the matter was for the post office. That's what the Sunday Times added. And this was the constant theme of ministers when they were asked to uh, look into the scandal. 
I'm just going to go scroll down to, to give you a couple of other examples because it's very interesting. So Norman Lamb was next, and he was more responsive, apparently, compared with some of the other ministers. But he only lasted about 10 seconds in the post. That was one of the problems, the constant churn of ministers, another wider theme that we have reflected on in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. But next up was Joe Swinson, this was by now 2013. And she was very similar to the sort of Ed Davey approach about operational independence of the post office. In fact, Joe Swinson said at one point, it's important that we do not talk the post office down. And on and on it goes. Now, why I find that so interesting and depressing with wider implications is that in the build-up to that coalition, which was formed in 2010, I and a few other columnists or political journalists were invited to a whole series of seminars organised by David Cameron's top people, Steve Hilton, you know, who, because he wore sandals, t-shirts and shorts and smoked, was seen as a modernizer. But actually, he was an emphatic small state right winger, now at ease and a big advocate of Trump in the United States. Uh, Oliver Letwin was another. They, they, they organized what they called, it was part of the whole big society, seminars looking at how you deliver in a different way. And one of the themes was this idea of government stepping back and uh, giving operational independence to other agencies. It included, I remember, Andrew Lansley, then the Shadow Health Secretary, saying at one of these seminars, if anything goes wrong with a hospital, I don't want to be the person on at 10 past eight on the Today programme as Health Secretary. The operational responsibility will lie elsewhere, not with me. And it was this kind of small state culture, which it followed Thatcherism very closely, where she set up endless quangos to run things, um, theoretically accountable to a Whitehall department. In housing, I remember she set up a load of quangos to run public housing in certain areas. And so when this coalition was formed, the Lib Dems, who on the whole have as part of their liberalism, or some of them, bought into this idea that, you know, government must be at arm's length, and other agencies must be operationally responsible and independent. And in this mess, all kinds of things arise. So, for example, some of those saying, urging, pleading with ministers to look into the outrage, which is now again erupting uh, around the media, said, look, the reason they're getting away with this in the post office is because you are stepping back. So in other words, instead of accountability and responsibility becoming sharper as a result of a less active state, it becomes weaker with blurred lines of responsibility comes complacency and arrogance and sometimes uh, indifference to delivery, or in this case, justice. In other cases, it might be greed. But if there isn't 
absolute clear lines of responsibility, you don't get sharper delivery or a sharper response to a scandal. You get the opposite. And this has happened again and again and again. If there is no clear answer to the question, who is in control of whom? Which part of government is responsible for X? And if the government has stepped away from responsibility, how are others to be made accountable for what they do or don't do? And it's fascinating now, people screaming, why didn't Ed Davey do more at the time, uh, etc.? Or why don't they strip away the honour from the uh, woman who got an honour who was leading the post office at the time or whatever? But this is what happened when things go wrong. What? Everyone's screaming. The Daily Mail screaming. Everyone's screaming. What did the government do about it? Where was Ed Davey? He's got a lot to answer for. And yet the rest of the time, the culture of the British media, uh, the Conservative Party's approach to the state, elements of Labour's approach to the state, is the opposite. We should be out of all of this. But actually, when things go wrong, they all say, where's the minister? And it happens across the board. We've talked about it here before. During COVID, it was fascinating that Number 10 didn't dare hold a press conference with the head of NHS England and the health secretary because NHS England was theoretically operationally independent. But of course they weren't. The government, understandably, was screaming for things to be done in response to the COVID crisis. So who was in charge? Who is responsible? And this kind of culture has been confused for a long time. When Alan Milburn was health secretary, he wanted to create this distance from him and the government and the function of hospitals until something went wrong in a hospital. And then he was the one making the common statement, asserting his determination to get things right in that particular hospital. Cameron too in the health service when there was the crisis in mid-staffs hospital with all kinds of terrible things being exposed. Cameron himself, not even the health secretary, Cameron gave the statement in the House of Commons giving his personal prime ministerial pledge to get it right, that he would take responsibility. The opposite to the pre-2010 seminars that the Tory party were holding, that this part of the Lib Dem philosophy bought into. And until this is sorted, we've talked about, I did it again just before Christmas, some people think I uh, get too worked up about the terrible state of public transport in Britain and the trains in particular, but it's because they are emblematic of a wider problem about who is responsible for what. And that, I think, is the really depressing and interesting wider lesson from the post office scan. It's not that Ed Davey, who's a very nice guy, would be indifferent if he had taken the time to delve deep into what happened. He wouldn't be. I'm sure he's horrified now and would have been horrified at the time. But the culture, the philosophy was government stand back, let others 
take responsibility. But without that pressure, the others functioning in a kind of near vacuum of clear lines of accountability can sometimes, as I say, be either complacent, indifferent, or worse. And we need to sort this out in every element of uh, public service delivery. It was fascinating. I did a newspaper review on Sunday for Radio 4's Broadcasting House, and there were two other reviewers, and they too picked out stories. One was about money had been available for flooding protection, which hadn't been used. Well, who took the decision not to use the money? Or who failed to activate the availability of that money? Was it an agency? Was it ultimately government responsibility? And I suspect the answer is that it's not altogether clear. There are whole loads of unelected agencies, quangos, partially responsible, at least, for flood protection. But ultimately, of course, it's a government responsibility. And when there's really heavy flooding, Rishi Sunak himself will go out to inspect the floods. This needs to be much more clearly defined. And it's a real challenge for the Labour government, if there is a Labour government later this year, to sort this out. It's a big structural challenge. And it's partly, and this is a good thing, because politics should be about ideological disputes. It's partly ideological. If you think the state is basically useless and impressive, uh, oppressive and doomed to be inefficient, of course you go for all this fantasy about operational independence elsewhere and all the rest of it. But in the end, the responsibility and accountability comes back to elected people. And that should be a good thing because we can get rid of them, as Tony Benn used to say. But it's no good in the current context of all these complex, blurred lines of responsibility. So there we are. That's a kind of opening thought. I don't know what you all think in the cooperative, but I know for sure you'll let me know. And to do so, a reminder for new listeners. Oh, yeah, by the way, uh, existing members of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative, please tell if each of you tells one other to start subscribing to Rock and Roll Politics you know, we will be all prevailing in 2024. And um, if you tell them also to subscribe and do subscribe yourself, that too means every episode you just get without having to say, oh yeah, doesn't he do something today? Oh yeah, better see what he's up to. Um, we're all in it together. And the email, steverick14 at iCloud.com. steverick at iCloud.com. While we're on the subject of kind of forever boosting the cooperative, if you could leave a review, only if you like it, that would be fantastic. You know, kind of this kind of five-star reviews for some reason in the podcast's uh, atmosphere or whatever you call it makes a big difference. And we're all up for making a difference this year. Thank you. Now, over to your brilliant points and questions. So we're going to begin with some of the responses. Now, in the live show, 
which are considerable expense in the Christmas special. We, uh, at Podmasters, the legendary Podmasters, we recorded. Uh, some of you will know this. If I hope all of you will know this, because it was uh, the podcast before last, so you can still get it. Uh, the uh, great transport specialist who's been on this uh, podcast, uh, Christian Walmart, was in the audience, and he asked a question which was, what should Labour's slogan be at the next election? Now, I'm useless at slogans. I couldn't think of anything off the top of my head. In fact, all I could think of was all the bad slogans of the past. Um, I remember the uh, 2005 election Labour slogan was, forward, not back. You know, what does that mean? Now, of course, they're not meant to mean very much slogans. Forward, not back. Yeah, let's move forward, not back. Uh, but anyway, quite a few of you have been stimulated to suggest slogans. So uh, Oliver MacArthur writes, thanks for hosting excellent show. Oh, thank you very much, Oliver. I attended with my cousin after not seeing the show live since the pandemic. Oh, yeah, yeah I think a lot are coming to live shows again now. It's interesting, you know, it was, it was uh, pretty packed out at uh, King's Place. So, yeah, you better... Get booking, Oliver. Hope to see you in March. Anyway, Oliver's proposition, uh, things can only get better. Yeah, well, actually, uh, people are starting to use that a bit. And, 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 you know, that song, it's a bit like, um, you know, when England play in the World Cup or European Championships, the song about football coming home always recurs. You know, the that is coming back. But Kiss Summer's leaning quite a lot on new labour techniques. Um, I think that would be a bit of a direct lift, Oliver, a bit too kind of over maybe. But um, I think it will be a song around uh, election time if, if labour wins. Uh, thank you very much for that. Now, Laundry Joe, so-called, because... At one stage, anyway, uh, he listened to the podcast whilst doing his laundry. Uh, it was great to see him at the show. Um, and he said, I was thinking about the man in front of me in the queue. Yeah, at the end, I was signing books, uh, the Turning Point book. Again, I apologise if none of you can read what I wrote um, on that evening. And and, and behind, in front of Laundry Joe, there was a guy who, who was speaking to me when he bought the book. He said that even though he couldn't vote Tory like he used to, he still couldn't bring himself to vote for Labour because he still couldn't trust them on the economy. Uh, yeah, it was a very interesting conversation. And by the way, on that front, so I said to the guy, the, the Tory voter, you are another barometer figure for the rock and roll politics cooperative. We've got quite a few. Stuart Grant voted Tory last time, disillusion with the Tories. Uh, where are you, Stuart? Are you with Labour yet or not? Uh, and we've got one or two others who, you know, people spend a fortune on opinion polls of floating voters. We've got them in the cooperative. So get in touch with us very soon, please. Uh, we've got other listeners, mothers who are key figures in uh, letting us know who voted Tory regularly, but not probably next time. What are they going to do? Where are they going to go? Anyway, Laundry Joe, I was thinking about Christian Walmart's challenge to come up with a political slogan. Uh, I was wondering if you could test some of these amongst the collective. End the drift, end the rot, save the pound, vote Labour. Not sure about saving the pound, uh, Laundry Joe. That was, of course, the Tories in 2001 when that whole Euro thing was going, uh, going around, you know, when there was... 
to be honest, once both parties offered a referendum on the euro, it was never going to happen. Um, what else did Lord Richard make Britain work again? That's quite clever. Uh, somebody else wrote in and saying the, the good one would be make Britain great again, you know, the Trump echo, which would be risky. Uh, but make is a useful verb because it implies something active. Uh, so I quite like that one. Make, although you can't say make Britain work, it sounds too, um, uh, yeah, a bit too Trumpist, laundry, you know, the kind of enforcement thing. Um, don't just dream of a better country, vote for one. Uh, Labour, working for you, your family, and our country. Yeah, that's quite good. Anyway, there are quite a few. Haven't, forgive me, Joe, I haven't got time to read them all out. Uh, oh, one, that's a funny one. Take back our country, vote Labour. Yeah, well, take back is clever, as we all know. Take back control, uh, which has caused such havoc in its imprecision while sounding precise. Uh, thank you, Joe. Um, next one is from Jamie Singleton. I haven't got it boiled down to a slogan. Yeah, I know what you mean, Jamie. I can't. I'm useless. These things, four or five words. But I think Labour should go pop for positivity, something people are crying out in these times, and think along the lines of wise investment. A word like wise showing that the investment is carefully considered. Uh, this could be linked to a sense of believing in Britain, a kind of labour patriotism. Yeah, the Kirsten will love all this, uh, Jamie. Um, they could use a teacher's language to compare this to a business shrewdly investing in its resources, people, infrastructure, equipment. This is uh, all because, as you say, you haven't got the slogan, but the challenge for Labour in opposition is to become a teacher with a deeply critical classroom in the sense of the media. But these are all good ideas about how to put a positive case for things that can sometimes sound very evasive. Thank you very much. Uh, Charlie O'Neill says, I live in North Birmingham and regularly go door knocking in the blistering cold on behalf of the Labour Party. I was recently left bewildered when a rather disagreeable member of the public told me that he wouldn't vote for Starmer in the upcoming election because of the Iraq war. In light of this bizarre experience, I was wondering what your thoughts are on the lasting impact of events and their implications for political leaders, even ones that weren't involved yet happened to be members of the same party that was. Yeah, indeed, Kistama at the time was against the war uh, in Iraq and, uh, in fact, argued that it was unlawful. Um, he's now very close to Tony Blair, and I wonder where that will take him in foreign policy if uh, Tony Blair's influence continues in government. Uh, we don't know the answer to that question at the moment. But it is an interesting point, the impact of defining moments like the war in Iraq, the winter of discontent that happened under Jim Callaghan in 78, 79, but continued to haunt Neil Kinnock when he became leader of the Labour Party, up to the 92 election, where the Conservatives were still using images of the winter of discontent from that period. And Iraq is one of those big events. I don't think Tony Blair will be fully remembered. A lot of people say he'll be remembered only for Iraq. I think that's not the case at all in terms of a historical context. But nor do I think Iraq was an aberration 
for in Blair's leadership. It was uh, his attempt to try and find and navigate a so-called third way uh, by persuading Bush to go to the UN, but promising to back him if he didn't get UN support. Um, it was a convoluted, doomed third way. Um, but it is, yeah, so, so these things continue to hover in some voters' minds. Um, and uh, But it is interesting because Starmer was opposed to the, the war. They do fade over time. Um, in fact, some events fade far too quickly. But to give you another example, Sunak, part of his problem at the moment uh, is the conduct of uh, Johnson and Truss. Now, Sunak is a different figure to either of those two, but he is suffering and is partly trapped by the appalling chaos in their different ways of the Johnson and then trust eras. Thank you very much. Interesting point. Now, I always get excited when I see the name Lee Rowley uh, mentioned. And Blake Ford said, I was interested in your recent mention of Lee Rowley as a supposed future leader candidate. Uh, yeah, it, it, just to fill you in, Blake, it slightly tongue-in-cheek, you know, but we are, we are following Lee Rowley's career, and it's going up and up and up. Anyway, uh, he goes on to say, I recently went to a talk he gave, my God, this is, this is dedication to the cause, Blake, to a talk he gave to the University of Sheffield students where I'm studying. He was asked at one point whether he would want to be leader and obviously roared it out as they all do. But what was interesting was an implicit continued endorsement for Kemi Badenoch as he was head of her leadership campaign. Yeah, now, uh, the uh, legendary academic and writer and author Tim Bale alerted me to this as well. Lee Rowley, watch him, because uh, not only do we see him as a figure soaring to the very top, even though he denied it at Blake's public meeting, his hunger for that, yeah, he chooses the favourite to be the next leader with an instinctive genius. Uh, so he, we've got to, I think, keep an even closer watch on him because virtually everyone I speak to, when you think about the next leader, uh, the Tories I speak to say Kemi Badnot starts as favourite. And who was there at the very beginning of her rise? Our man, Lee Rowley. Thank you, Blake, for keeping us informed. And uh, Tim Bale, I say, alerted me to uh, the wisdom of Lee Rowley in choosing a potential winner. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in the New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? With me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez. Out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, next up is Robert Newton, who says, 
Does all the attention and effort that a party puts into the politics of the day affects its ability to focus on governing, uh, not least in an election year? Uh, yeah. Uh, and he has, I don't think we've had meaningful government since the referendum. Well, Robert, I don't know what you mean by meaningful. I don't think we were having good government before the referendum and actually in the build-up to the referendum sucked up all political energy as well. But you're, you're absolutely right to raise the point because this is the year where there's a vivid example of this. We know, for example, that the Home Secretary, James Cleverly, thought uh, the Rwanda scheme was uh, rubbish and is now implementing it. We know, and Rishi Sunak was interrogated by Laura Koonsberg about this on Sunday, that Sunak as Chancellor was deeply sceptical about the cost and the potency of the Rwanda scheme as a deterrent. It's being implemented as part of the pre-election campaign, not because ministers think it's a sensible policy. And this insane focus on tax cuts, almost plucked out of any other wider economic context, is not because Jeremy Hunt, who as chair of the Health Select Committee came to realise that more money was needed for the NHS and social care, thinks this is the sole priority. It's been done in an attempt to win. Not Well, I don't think they think they can win an election. I think Sunak dares to hope so. I don't think Jeremy Hunt thinks they're going to win. Uh, it's an attempt to narrow the poll lead. It's not about sensible government. Politics always intervenes in terms of what people want to do and think they can do, but especially at this part of the cycle, we're going to be badly governed. And incidentally, with implications for the next government, uh, because if Labour, which they will do, sign up to the tax cuts Jeremy Hunt will announce in the budget, they basically will sign up to any of them, not the inheritance tax cut. Um, where are they going to find the money for these public services on their knees? Um, anyway, over to driver Andy, uh, van man Andy. He points out he's watching very closely the Reform Party on behalf of the cooperative. Some of his mates are, are fans of it. And, and anyway, uh, he says, Reform selecting Ben Habib as its man for Wellenborough in the by-election will be a perfect litmus test for how the right-wing vote will split in the red brick wall. I believe it'll throw Farage and the whole cast of grotesques at the town, just eight miles from where I live. I so I used to, I worked for Radio Northampton, Andy, BBC Radio Northampton. My first staff job in the BBC was uh, for BBC Radio Northampton. I know Wellingborough. Um, the slogan for Radio Northampton, because it was on medium wave 1107, tune in to 1107 and feel you're in heaven. Uh, all I can say is if that's heaven, give me hell every time. But anyway, that's another story. Um, anyway, he uh, says, uh, it's just eight miles from where I live, Wellingborough, and will shock the cooperative with its vote share. He thinks reform are going to do well. If not, I promise to stop banging on about how some combination of reform and the Tory right are going to coalesce and have a major and unforeseen impact on the 2024 
general election. We need to watch that Wellenborough by-election very closely. Uh, Andy, thank you very much indeed. Now, let's go on to the next one. Sorry, I've just got so many here. I've kind of got lost. I've been inundated in 2024. Oh, yeah. Andrew Stewart's got... um, a proposed slogan. He said, listening to the King's Place live event while on my walk yesterday and was surprised that the challenge to come up with a slogan for Labour at the next election seemed to flummox your audience. His suggestion, Britain isn't working, let's fix it together. I like that one. Britain isn't working, let's fix it together. Good one. Uh, Keir Starmer listens to the podcast so do quite a few of the Shadow Cabinet that's a good one anyway why are we doing this they they pay advertising agencies a fortune for this kind of advice Uh, Joe Ruffles how do media narratives get set this came up tangentially in the King's Place show but the discussion went into a different direction Uh, yeah by the way the legendary Joe Ruffles often comes to the live shows he wasn't able to make that one so um, it'd be nice to see Joe in the coming months Um, is it just luck someone comes up with a phrase and it sticks gains traction and becomes the narrative no doubt political actors and parties have teams who try and engineer their particular narratives to take hold and it seems that occasionally someone tries and fails which can be cringe inducingly amusing Uh, i suppose social media plays a role and so on well the emergence of a political narrative will take a whole podcast really jazz i think i might have said to you but um it is a combination sometimes of events context the economic situation uh, a sudden convulsion. Um, sometimes it's a campaigning theme that takes hold, as you say. Sometimes attempts at a campaigning theme not taking hold becomes in itself a kind of counter narrative. It, it, it is a hodgepodge of things from which kind of impressions are formed by voters, and we're going to have to follow all this closely with our forensic scrutiny and sense of the past which shines light on the present that's so important now in this election year. Uh, Thank you, Joe. Okay, the next one is uh, Nigel, who lives in uh, Japan and uh, writes to us regularly from Japan and reminds us he's been out of the country for 25 years. Maybe it's changed, but it certainly used to be uh, racist, judging from overheard conversations in the local pub. Uh, Dare you talk about how many votes the non-white leader of the Conservative Party will lose for them? I've not seen or heard anything about this. You certainly can't poll the question, will your racist views stop you voting for the Conservative Party? Or perhaps you can, but don't expect an honest answer. Uh, Well, actually, this did come up quite a lot during the leadership contest with Sunak Uh, not being elected because some party members might be racist. I don't think that was the reason. I think it was an economic debate which Liz Truss won within the context of that right-wing membership. Um, And I think it's an interesting, uh, you know, who knows, uh, to be honest. I don't think it is one of the fundamental reasons why Sunak is in deep difficulty. For that, listen to the podcast I put out last week, uh, where I argue that there was one route for him to narrow the Labour lead, which is to sort of, to put it crudely, 
attack Starmer from the Tory left to suddenly put the case for a big focus on public services and levelling up and all these kind of things uh, to compare with the sort of caution of the Starmer project. But if you attack Starmer from the right, you won't get him uh, in the same way that William Hague, who went to try and attack Blair from the right, couldn't get him. But I think, it, to be honest, that it probably is a factor in some voters. Not many, uh, but some. Now, Venetia Kane responded to another recent podcast where we were talking about the sort of presidential culture in Britain and the ridiculous pressure on the single figure of a prime minister who doesn't have the presidential resources, even though the responsibilities are close to being presidential. And one of the uh, cooperative suggested assistant prime ministers, given our presidential system. Venetia points out, we have assistant ministers. They're called secretaries of state, but they've been deprived of their role by our increasingly presidential system, started, it seems to me, by Tony Blair. And what supports that presidential system? The special advisers. When I was in the Treasury, there was just Marcia Williams in the Harold Wilson era. Um, yeah, it has changed the kind of focus on the leader and the subservience of the cabinet. Certainly that was the case in the Blair era. I think he thought he was modeling his leadership to some say on Margaret Thatcher, but it's becoming increasingly clear, uh, that she, while being utterly dominant and terrified half the cabinet, was up for cabinet discussion and being challenged to a limited extent. But it needs to be kind of sorted out, I think, because in fairness to Sunak, wherever he turns, he's got these huge calls to make, around-the-clock work, and it is kind of presidential. And if you look at the way this year has started, it's kind of Sunak versus Starmer. But actually, in our party-based system, it should be Labour versus the Tories versus Lib Dems versus SNP and so on. But actually, the focus on leaders is kind of presidential, I think, Venetia. And you, as you say, it's a, a matter of choice for the leaders. Um, but I think that is the culture anyway, uh, well, it's the media culture. Um, okay, I keep on doing something today, ominous start to the year where I kind of move on to a question and they all disappear. But I'm coming back to one. John from Manchester says, my friend was a Johnson supporter in 2019 and now feels Starmer lacks a winning formula. She predicts a hung parliament, but I think the Tories will get wiped out. So there you have the range via John from Manchester. His friend predicting that uh, it'll be a hung parliament, John predicting with the kind of pincer movement from uh, the Lib Dems, the Reform Party, uh, Labour doing better in Scotland, uh, a, a landslide. If it's okay with you, I would just leave your exchange there of the kind of range rather than giving a kind of prediction. We've got quite a lot to uh, get through. Uh, David Smith said, 
Would Keir be well advised to make standards in public office a theme as so many are disengaged in politics, unlike us rock and rollers, uh, as politicians are seen as all the bloody same? Well, as you can see, David, he started doing that. I think he's wrong to sort of endorse what he calls the anti-Westminster mood, because that encompasses all of them. Um, and the disillusionment now, I think, is with largely the kind of Tory government and a wariness of voters so far with um, Labour and whether Labour have the answers. But I think kind of to endorse too sweepingly an anti-Westminster mood is just to sort of feed the kind of anti-politics kind of frenzy which has been around, frankly, in Britain and elsewhere for decades. Uh, thank you very much. Matthew Ryder, uh, just a short moment. This was after the King's Place show. Oh, thank you. Uh, the second show I've been to of yours and I hope to be there in March. Oh, all right. See you there, Matthew. Uh, it was interesting to meet some other members of the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative at King's Place. I wondered whether any consideration has been given to researching the profile of the cooperative. As a group, they appear to be quite formidable, and perhaps a skills audit might be a useful exercise during an election year. Well, great idea. Uh, and you've heard it here first. Um, I'm going to audit you all. Uh, and put myself up for audit and see where that leads us all uh, in this election year. Um, but yeah, it was great to meet so many of the cooperative at the live shows. I mean, not all the live show people listen to the podcast and obviously not all podcast listeners go to the live shows, though I hope that will change in 2024. Uh, James Munro was listening to a rival podcast. I can't believe it, James. Uh, and during it, a certain figure known as George Osborne pointed out that various Labour politicians have spent and re-spent the £3.2 billion that would be raised by abolishing the non-DOM tax regime. Have you noticed this? Do you agree that Labour need to tighten this message? Uh, the whole thing, James, is I have, and uh, you're right, he's right. Uh, it's being used basically to convey the sense of an entire national recovery on the back of this non-DOM tax, um, which of course is absurd. But given that the whole tax and spend debate pre-election, as we've discussed many times here, is absurd, I just don't blame them really. Why not behave absurdly as well? And it is ridiculous. But look, Jeremy Hunt has just found billions for tax cuts uh, in the autumn statement or found find billions more. And no one's saying, well, where, where did you get this money from, uh, Mr. Hunt? You know, it's just how are you going to spend the billions? Is it on inheritance tax cuts uh, or other forms of tax cuts? Whereas if Labour say we're going to spend 25 pence on childcare, all hell breaks loose. So given that, they might as well pretend a non-DOM tax can save the world, even though it can't. But they do have to watch it because every penny they implicitly propose to spend is scrutinised as if it's in the end of the world uh, by the broadcasters and the newspapers. It's just what happens to Labour in the build-up to an election. Uh, John Cooper, I'm sick to the back teeth of... The meaningless uh, stop the boats rhetoric. Uh, yeah, John uh, wrote this on a packed 
train around the Christmas New Year period. And it suddenly hit me how nice it would be to focus on a different form of transport where meaningful change could actually be achieved. How would Labour do running the more positive start the train slogan? That would get my vote. Yeah, what about that? Start the trains. Um, And he wrote it as he was being jostled on a train. By the way, he adds, I'm quite good at whittling. If that can be put to use in the cooperative, uh, Union Jack Spoons, anyone? I think, John, there's going to be a huge demand for that offer in the Rock and Roll Politics Cooperative. Yes, start the trains. There's another slogan. Slogans, it's as if we're Sachi and Sachi. Uh, in 1979, who composed that famous phrase, Labour isn't working, which was ironic in its success, given that uh, the Tory policies at the time were going to lead to 3 million unemployed. But there we go. Well, what a lot we've got through in our first big gathering of 2024. Um, Say, if you missed the earlier one, quite an important piece, though I say it myself, about implications for Labour's positioning and Sunak's positioning and incarceration in, in in the current electoral cycle and mood of the Tory party. But that, that was the last one. For that, there is a recording, a rare recording. It's like a bootleg of a Beatles in Hamburg in 1961 or whenever it was, 62, of uh, the live show, the Christmas show at King's Place. But yeah, I think we better stop there. You'll have all done whatever you do while you're listening to the podcast, I suspect. And we'll need now to lie down in a darkened room, but not for very long, because we are at the start of the election year, which means we need to stay very alert. Uh, Please subscribe to Patreon if you can and tell friends to subscribe to Patreon. That would be great. Uh, Loads of bonus podcasts. And some of you were very nice about the last... um, podcast in the series on political rivalries. I think the last one looked at Tony Benn and Dennis Healy. And there will be an announcement next week about your bonus podcast for January. And there will be a live event on Patreon very soon as well, where we all get together live kind of around the country via is it Zoom or whatever it is that we do it via by? Uh, so do, if you can, subscribe. It also helps uh, keep the show on the road with, uh, say, the great Podmasters, the great people, Simon, Anne-Marie, and all the others of Podmasters who help keep this whole thing going. Anyway, look, thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, see you again very soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.